0: Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and All the Ships at Sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today on the show, we have Elif Batuman, who's a New Yorker, staff writer, and the author most recently of The Idiot, a novel. That's right. I've been an Elif fan for a long time. She's ever amazing. Since the Possessed. I
1: heard of her because of her dedication to Russian literature, and I felt an affinity. So I'm very excited to talk to her today. Me too. She's great.
0: (laughs) We're here today with Elif Batuman, Elif has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 2010. Her first book, The Possessed, adventures with Russian books and the people who read them. A series of interrelated essays about Russian literature was a finalist for the National Books Critics Circles Award. She's been a recipient of a Witting writer's award, a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writer's Award, and a Paris Review Terry Southern Prize for Humor. Her new novel, The Idiot, was recently published by Penguin Random House. Hi, Ella. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, hi. I'm super excited to be here. I'm um, so happy to have you. No, I am the happy one. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe you could start off, just for listeners who haven't read the book yet, by telling us a little bit what The Idiot is about. The Idiot, it's one of those books that's
2: rescued from a drawer. Like, I wrote it a really long time ago, only it's not the drawer. It was in the cloud for a really long time. Basically, it's set over a calendar year in the life of a college freshman, Harvard freshman, who is, like me, Turkish-American. And it's set in 1995, 95 to 96, when I was a freshman. So it's sort of based on my own realm of experience. And she gets email for the first time, and she has kind of an email epistolary romance with a guy who she actually sees all the time, but like they don't talk to each other, they just write each other these emails. And then she pursues this, and it leads her into an odd direction, and then the book just sort of ends.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) As a main character, Mm. Selin, I found her to be just incredibly sweet, and I guess there's a naivete about her, but Mm -hmm. she's funny and smart, and I was wondering how you imagined her as a character. You're saying it's kind of based on your own experience, but... Yeah.
2: Well, but it's funny, because I think at the time that I wrote it, so I wrote it when I was like 22, 23, the first draft, about the time when I or someone like me was 18 or 19. And then I didn't look at it until I was like 38. So by that time, when I looked at it, first it was full of stuff that I didn't remember. I don't even necessarily remember like how autobiographical it is because the book has sort of replaced my actual memories because it's so much more vivid. But when I looked back at that narrator's voice, so actually I was working on another kind of autobiographical novel that was set in 2010. And this revisiting that I'm talking about took place in 2015. So oh, wow. between then and 2010, I was basically the same like adult person, like between age 33 and 38. Like I didn't go through any major changes. But between eighteen and thirty-eight, you're a different person. And so having been a nonfiction writer for so long and then going to fiction or back to fiction, it was kind of wonderful to have this material to work with because it really felt like fiction, that she was someone who was really different from me. And when I read it, I don't know, I recognized parts of myself, but there was a lot that was foreign to me and a lot that seemed kind of obnoxious and a lot that seemed really embarrassing. And some of it I took out or changed, but a lot of it I wanted to leave as it was because I don't know, that felt more kind of authentic to me and more of the time.
1: Hmm. And what brought you back to fiction or to fiction in general?
2: Well, I actually always wanted to write novels. That was my dream. Like since before I knew what a novel was, I wanted to write novels, which is weird. And yeah, I should probably talk about that with my therapist. But um, <laughs> I've always loved to read novels. I'm super excited about the novel tradition. I feel like it's this like one literary form that has the this kind of built-in way of updating itself and expanding itself. And it's actually its subject matter is kind of the outdating of previous novels. So it's just a tradition that I'm really excited to be a part of, and that even while I was writing nonfiction, I kind of felt part of. But I was like excited about actually being able to say that I was doing it and to sit down and do it, which is not really easy because in the time that we live in, nonfiction is really popular, especially a few years ago, it was going through this renaissance and everyone was like, oh, all well, the exciting energy is in nonfiction and in personal nonfiction. And basically, if you're writing anything that looked like it was about someone who was remotely like you or had the same like national ethnic background as you or like, if I wanted to write something about a Turkish-American person who is a graduate student in Russian literature, as I was, I was told by many people that nobody would want to read a novel about that, but that it could be nonfiction, it could be a memoir. And now that the times have changed a little bit, a lot of other writers have been doing super exciting stuff and pushing those lines a little bit. And I'm a little older and don't listen as much to what other people say, so that's why... I was really excited to write this novel, and I'm really excited to do a couple more that I'm working on now. Oh, that's well, great. That's exciting. Yeah.
0: There's a, a line in the book when Selma is talking about what leads her to write stories, because mm. in the novel, she's yeah. obviously on her way to becoming a writer and writes a story. She hopes, yeah. She, th- yeah. she, wins, a yeah, she wins a prize at Harvard. But I really like the description and She said, to make a chain of events that would account for a certain mood, for how it came about and what led to it. So it's Mm -hmm. about what happens as it pursues and kind of a mood or an atmosphere. And I think it's hard to do that maybe in nonfiction Mm -hmm. as much as it would be in a novel, that the story kind of is based around trying to relate something almost intangible that you can't say. And so it's like, how do you get that across? And I thought in this book that innocence of being a freshman or yeah. the engagement with words and knowledge and there's so much detail and experience so i wondered if that's how you approached because i know some of this material you had written about previously mm-hmm. in a nonfiction manner mm-hmm. so is that how you could justify to yourself writing it in some ways again but in a completely different way yeah i think that writing something as a novel
2: as fiction, even if some of the events and the people are based on nonfiction, it lets you be so much freer and so much more emotional. And really, I think the thing that felt the most freeing to me was writing from a fictional first person instead of trying to be faithful to my nonfiction persona. Because when I was writing The Possessed, where There are a few at the very beginning of The Possessed. It talks a little bit about my college experiences, and you can see that there's some things that are in The Possessed that are also in The Idiot, so there's some shared experiences there. But writing about those same things in The Possessed, I felt a kind of like almost responsibility to present like a fair and accurate picture of myself and of how I was at that time. And that felt kind of like almost a journalistic responsibility to not misrepresent myself. And then on top of that, there was all of the stuff about being embarrassed to express certain things Mm -hmm. or not wanting to make certain relationships with other people awkward by writing about them in certain ways. And I think the reason that even autobiographical writers like, for example, Proust could have written his whole series of novels as a memoir, but I think the reason that he and, and many other novelists who are still interested in the material of their own lives choose to write novels instead of memoirs is in part to just be able to say that's not me and to think of that person as an artistic creation, to be able to accentuate certain features and downplay other ones, to not think about representing the truth, to not think about creating something that's like a little consistent part of the rest of reality that has to fit into it, but to think about creating something that is its own reality. Like Céline, like Elif, me, in The Possessed has like a whole life and... History that's outside of the possessed, that the possessed has to somehow fit inside in some more or less coherent way. But with the idiot, that's like all we know about Céline. She's just the person in that book. It just has to be consistent with that. And that gave me so much more freedom to play around and to express kind of more, I think, more rawness and more emotion that there is in the possessed.
0: Mm -hmm. And what did you see as her? Did you imagine her having an arc as a character? Because by the end of the book, it seems in the beginning that a lot of stuff kind of flows off her and that she'll be hurt, but she kind of soldiers on. But by the end of the book she seems so disillusioned, actually. So I wondered what you saw as her character arc. Well, it's funny so when I wrote the first
2: draft, it it had a very different shape from the idiot the way it stands now. It had a lot of flashbacks and flash forwards and it ended further in the future and then it, when I was looking back at it, first of all, it was very embarrassing because it was something that I wrote in my early 20s, and it was full of just horrible, absurd, awfulness. It, like it, <laughs> like it went into second person, like a video game. It was like a, oh, <laughs> there was all wow. kinds. Of, there was this like <laughs> tissue of like language game, like all of which I think was there to prove that like I, the person writing this book, and so much smarter than the narrator, who is but this 18-year-old fool. But like the narrator was. A, 23-year-old fool, so anyway, when I looked back at it, the thing that was really compelling to me was that one calendar year and was everything about it that was kind of the most visceral and funny and uncomfortable and awkward and embarrassing and also unexpected all at the same time, and that's why I wanted to call it The Idiot, that title came to me then during the revision. And I like the calendar year structure because it has kind of this Bildungsroman traditional scaffold to it. But within that, I wanted to do something really different. So I did want to have some of those hallmarks there, but I didn't want it to end with the same kind of bow that the buildings Bildungsroman often ends with. So yeah, I did try. She comes in with certain illusions, and she loses some of those illusions. And in the end, I don't know, I kind of wanted to show what it really f- felt like to be that age and to have so few signposts and then to kind of make up some and then to find out that those are wrong either. So I wanted to end not in a point where like she's completely destroyed and like we're expecting to find her homeless in two years. But (laughs) I didn't want to end where she was like, oh, now I realize everything I didn't know at the beginning. And I now I'm ready to go to the next thing. I wanted it to be someone who's on an upward trajectory, but you don't quite know what's going to happen next. And Actually, part of what I was thinking, already I was thinking about the sequels to this book. So I did want it to be a self-standing book and to make sense in that way. But I was also thinking about the next couple of steps.
1: I was wondering about, and then you mentioned her looking for signposts, right? And that literature really serves Mm -hmm. as a sort of scaffolding for Mm -hmm. many of the signposts that she does eventually see. And it seems like for you that was probably... Russian literature for a long time, so I was wondering what your thinking was about literature as a kind of signpost as children, you know, they're 18, they're really, sorry kids, but you're totally children. As a child, maybe what it was for you, and then also what it's like now, if literature serves, and maybe Russian literature in particular, feels quite different than it did when you were 18.
2: Well, I think all my life, I mean, all my sentient life from long before age 18, I loved stories, and I loved books and reading. And before I could read, I loved being read to. And before I could write, I used to dictate stories to my aunt, and she would write them down because she was a really good aunt. And I think there are some people who just for whatever reason really have to see their lives as a story and have to see themselves as a character in a story. And I don't know if that is what draws someone to pursue literature or if it's the other way around. I'm not sure which direction it works. But anyway, Céline is like that, and I'm like that too. And I also... I grew up in a very secular household. My parents are scientists. They're secular Turkish scientists. And they came from a very secular generation and they were like, you know, religion is basically a shortcut to help you be a good person. But if you can just be a good person without the religion, that's actually much more direct. So I didn't have any kind of like religious structure. And I think that over time, and especially in graduate school, novels and particularly Russian novels became that kind of religious text that would help to interpret and make rules for how to live. Because when I think about how I read Russian novels, it's really how a lot of religious people read the Bible. Like there are stories that can illustrate something about how you're supposed to live. And then particularly the thing that was dramatized in the Russian novels was this tension between, in a lot of cases, between secularism and religion. Hmm. And I think that that actually I responded in some way to that without knowing it at the time. And in fact, when people used to suggest to me, oh, is the reason that you're interested in Russian literature because Russia, like Turkey, is torn between East and West? I was like, I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. But it wasn't stupid. I think it was true. I do still have it not as much as I used to at that time when I was reading Russian novels day and night. But I mean, I don't know, I just reread Anna Karenina, couple months ago, and I was so scared it wouldn't be mind-blowing, and it was mind-blowing and devastating, so I guess they're still with me.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood, and now for this week's book recommendation.
1: We are lucky to have Melissa Febos, author of Abandon Me, a collection of essays, back in the studio with us today to give us a book recommendation. Melissa, what will you recommend today?
3: I am going to recommend a book of poetry, and I'm going to preface my recommendation by saying that I recently took a kind of two-year hiatus from poetry. Poetry was my doorway into writing and into reading, and then I had sort of a rupture in my relationship with it, and I took a couple of years off, and I have recently come back to poetry. I have renewed my vows with poetry, and we're on a second honeymoon, and- Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. We're very happy. and. So I'm going to recommend a book of poetry that came out this fall on Gray Wolf in October, I think. And it's called Bestiary or Bestiary. You can pronounce it either way. And it's by a poet named Danika Kelly. And I was drawn to this book because I love bestiaries, which are these books, this medieval form of encyclopedia that catalogs fantastical beasts. There are some known bestiaries. Jorge Luis Borges's Book of Imaginary Beings is my favorite and many other people's favorite, but there are so many. And I just love the way that the entire concept of a bestiary is hilarious to me because it seems to exhibit this like very human, very hopeless wish to categorize that which is uncategorizable. (laughs) We're going to take the fantastic, the magical, the invented, and we're going to make an encyclopedia of it. It's like the same sort of logic that drives like diagnoses or like race. It's bad science. But so I was drawn to it because I love BTRs and I love sort of the irony of categorizing the uncategorizable. But also it is a dazzling, dazzling book. It's these sort of short, beautiful poems that seem, I'm looking for the right adjective, they feel very easy and very whole, but they have this very complex sort of stream of different personas and animals and different tones of voice. They operate in a number of different registers. And most of all, they seem to really embody this thing that I am always sort of trying to do as a writer and that I'm always looking for as a reader, which is enact this exploration of a corner of one's self or psyche or the human experience, but to bring one's whole self into that exploration. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel isolated. It feels holistic. It feels like it is drawing you into it, but it also is highly focused. So I strongly recommend it.
1: It sounds great. The question I have for you is, what are the circumstances under which you read poetry? Because to me, sometimes it feels prohibitive. It feels like you need to dive into something Mm -hmm. that is so not part of your quotidian, generally prosaic, everyday life. And then you sit down and suddenly you have something that feels impenetrable or just not a part of a routine.
3: So what do you do? How do you read it? When do you read it? I often read before I write and there's something I think I know exactly what you're talking about there's a correlative experience for me in visual art where I just bring so little to it like I don't know anything about it you know I know a little bit more about poetry but it's not my form it's not the form that I practice but something about that prohibition also gives me a kind of freedom where I can I'm allowed to bring to it my ignorance and I can sort of just find what I find and I can just like let it talk to me however I'm gonna hear it if that makes any sense and so I read poetry not in any kind of deliberate way not at all with the same critical mind that I read forms that I write in like the way I read essays there's always sort of the split vision where there's the reader and the writer the writer's always present in those readings and with poetry I just read it as a person I just read it as an animal I read it like as someone who's looking for words to live by or sounds that move me. And and so I read it sort of with a lot of curiosity and surprise and innocence in a way that I don't have in other places. So I'll often just like pick up a book of poetry and flip through and open something up and just see what I find there. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was a very avid and instinctual bibliomancer where I would flip through books and sort of stick my finger in a place and look for like my fortune or words to live by. And poetry always feels a little bit like that to me.
1: That's very good and wise advice. Thank you. Would you say the name of the book again? The, the book author?
3: is Bestiary by Danica Kelly.
1: Thank you so much, Melissa. Melissa Phoebos is the author of Abandon Me. And thank you again for coming to our studios. Thank you.
0: You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Elif Batuman, author of The Idiot. So the book takes its title from a Dostoevsky novel, but does it end there in terms of the correlation between the Dostoevsky novel and your novel? or? Well, I, yeah, I've been thinking about that. So the reason I called it The Idiot,
2: it was partly because I realized that the parts that I wanted to bring out were the parts that are more embarrassing and awkward, but it was also because the novel that I was writing at the time that I returned to the draft of The Idiot was about someone who's like me, who has written a book like The Possessed, only her autobiographical collection of interconnected essays on Russian literature is called The Idiot, which I thought was, <laughs> I thought that was really funny, and I just kind of got attached to the idea of someone writing kind of an autobiographical book called The idiot so the idiot was kind of a callback to the possessed but then someone asked me oh were you trying in some way to retell dostoevsky's the idiot and i was like no of course not but then i thought about it and like dostoevsky's idiot is also about this really young kind of idealistic person who just arrives in a new place and falls in love with kind of an inappropriate person and is just like running around constantly and like never getting enough sleep like there is some sort of family resemblance and then i was thinking that in general So Dostoevsky is also kind of thematically present in The Idiot, and Selin and the guy who she likes, Ivan, they talk about Dostoevsky, and Ivan really likes him, and Celin's like, yeah, and it's not my favorite. And in The Possessed, too, I talk about liking Tolstoy more than Dostoevsky, and yet I wrote two books where I basically just took the titles from Dostoevsky, (laughs) and it kind of reminded me of how Nabokov always used to say, like, horrible things about Dostoevsky any chance that he got but then if you look at his work like whole volumes can and have been written about the influence like the clear documented proven influence of Dostoevsky on Nabokov's novels so he clearly meant a lot to him and then I was like well clearly Dostoevsky's meant a lot to me and I'm not really acknowledging it either and then I was like why could that be and then I was like, "Well, what could be more Dostoevsky than that?" Like, clearly, there's something about Dostoevsky that really attracts people and repels them at the same time. And yeah, Dostoevsky must create this kind of perverse relationship in some of his readers. Hmm.
1: Well, and it seems like if you are thinking about the tension between the secular, yeah, and that's then that's my man, and the religious right. That's <laughs> totally your man. Yeah. I mean, that is right. Of that's course, like, yeah. He's the guy that you would go to. Yeah. Yeah, so it makes sense. It does make sense.
2: And that I would be denying it because I've always been someone who thought that my personal background has nothing to do with who I am and I sprung out of a rock or something, but I didn't. Right. I
1: mean, and because some of his books are just deeply unpleasant and the yeah. characters are deeply unpleasant and so. And you just want to turn that voice off, yeah. You do and some I mean it's an interesting voice but yeah it's interesting.
2: I mean I kind of see elements of that in Celine like that obsessive thinking like if this is like this then that is like that and all is permitted and then someone walks in and
1: There's a
0: hammer on the head. Yeah, there's yeah. a hammer on the head. <laughs> I wondered about the email or mm. kind of the technology setting a book in a certain time and a time where a lot of the plot is kind of contingent on this on a technology. Yeah. And about that choice? And then maybe more broadly, you know, how you see technology play as someone who studied literature so much, mm-hmm. the role, the specific role you think technology kind of plays in literature?
2: Yeah, well, all the email stuff, it was almost all the email stuff was there in the draft. But I'd written it completely unself consciously because it wasn't like, oh, look at this, it's so weird to discover email. It was just that was just how I wrote it. And then looking back at it, I mean, in real life, I did the first email account, I had was in college, I did get email on my first day of college. And then I wrote that. So now the opening of the book, which I wrote
0: later, is about the discovery of email. But was mm-hmm. it a monumental thing for you having email? It was, at time? it was
2: a monumental thing for me. Yeah. But when I looked back at the book, that was one of the first when I looked back at it, I was like, you know, part of finding that distance between myself now and the sailing of that time was realizing this is a historical novel, like this is set in 1995, which I Still, I mean, one tends to think of the time that one went to college as not being that long ago. (laughs) But I was like, this was 20 years ago. This is a historical novel. Everything has changed. The relationship to email was completely different. It was like the special, enchanted thing. I think I did feel like that when I was that age. But of course, by the time I, you know, by age 38, I'd completely forgotten that. And not only forgotten it, but email had become this bane of my life. I would have these like auto responders that would be like, I'm not looking at my email. Like, it was just misery, like a complete misery. And I, yeah, I was talking about that with a friend of mine who was like, Remember the days when you could have like a touching movie called You've Got Mail? And
1: like, <laughs> now it'd be a
2: horror movie. It would. It would. It Because would, would, then
1: you'd have to write that person back. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. They would check they in would the next judge day. You. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Horrible.
0: Yeah. Their emails are very sweet. And I don't think. I mean, I'm sure somewhere, someone, the email's between Stalin and Yvonne.
2: Yeah, they put so much time into them. So not everyone has email yet. Like, it's just people at school. It's like this, I don't know, secret new kind of club, and they don't... I think I remember from college that, like, all of the stuff that we now do by email, like receiving grades. It wasn't done by email yet. You would still go to a building and look at a piece of paper that was printed on a wall. So email was still kind of pure. It was like teachers didn't necessarily email you about your classes. Organizations didn't email you about meetings. It was still really personal for a while.
1: Right, right. I wanted to ask you, there's a part in the book where Selin talks about thinking differently in One language and Turkish Mm -hmm. and thinking differently in English and feeling as if she was, in fact, a different person with different thoughts in the two different languages. Mm -hmm. Well, I was wondering, what kind of person do you think you are in Turkish? Oh... I'm a much younger and more foolish, even more (laughs)
2: foolish, (laughs) much younger and even more foolish. Because I learned Turkish really in, my parents didn't speak Turkish to me right from the beginning. They always read to me in English. They went to American schools and they speak like amazing English. And then in 1980, there was a military coup and the airports were closed. And I was with my grandparents and I was supposed to just stay there a short time, but I stayed for a long time. And that was really when I learned Turkish. And then I didn't go to school there. We went back every summer. So I talked to my family but I don't have the professional vocabulary. I guess that's not what Selin was talking about. She's talking about the grammar. But I mean, even in that too, like the word order is so different that just thinking of everything, it really, I guess what I was saying, I mean, what Selin was saying isn't necessarily that she's a different person, but just that like her brain is forced to think in completely different ways. She's talking about reported speech that in Turkish there's a suffix that marks whether you heard something If you're saying, oh, so-and-so said this, you would use a different word for said, depending on whether you heard it personally or you heard it through hearsay, and how that kind of adds this whole, like, epistemological layer of filtering that has to go on. And how do you pronounce it? It's mish? Mish, yeah. Uh Or mush, because there's vowel harmony, so depending
1: on the previous word. (laughs) So she's talking about that. It isn't that she's a different person, or that you feel like you're a different person. It's just in terms of how one is thinking and how your brain is working. Yeah, I mean the that thing that she's different. responding
2: to is this theory that she's taught in linguistics class which is that the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis which is that language shapes your perception of reality or changes your experience in the world and that theory was like vociferously, rigorously, vehemently disproven by Chomskyan linguists. And Céline doesn't really like that. She kind of objects to the terms in which they disproved it. You know, they said, oh, you know, if language really affected your perception of reality, then people whose languages have more words for color would be better at remembering paint chips than people whose languages don't have those words. Then they did these tests with paint chips and found that people who speak different languages all are varyingly good at remembering paint chips. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with what language they speak, Mm -hmm. which To me, in real life, when I was a freshman in linguistics, I thought, but that's not the point. Like, the point is that language, maybe it doesn't shape your ability to remember paint chips, but it shapes... I don't know how you interpret interactions that you have with people, how you describe things that happen to you, the kind of, like, the different rhetorical angles that you take, whether you present something as being good or bad... It affects so many things in so many ways, and granted, you know, a lot of those things would be really difficult to test in a laboratory setting, but they're very real. That's what she was talking about. I mean, there's Mm
0: -hmm. a whole part in the book where she goes to see a school therapist, Mm -hmm. and he's questioning, he starts to question reality to her, you know, that maybe— this guy that she's been emailing with isn't even real. And she feels very strongly that that's wrong, you know, that that's ridiculous. So I think it's interesting in the book there are around language and Mm -hmm. maybe that's why the end has a particular resonance Mm -hmm. because it is someone kind of learning the boundaries of what can be said. Because there's a love in the story that doesn't completely come to fruition, Mm -hmm. even though it seems to be shared on both sides, I mean, who
2: knows? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly,
0: who knows? But it's expressed on both sides, but nothing, things happen. But by the end, the main character is a little bit where she was before. Mm -hmm. So I can see how that would make her question language. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, a big part of why I left it that way, because it would have been very easy to tie up the romance in a bow. Because one of the things that I was thinking about, even with the next novel I was writing, was how do you write a story that doesn't, end with either the girl gets the guy or the girl doesn't get the guy. How do you have a story where the meaning isn't determined by that? I just wanted to show that there's a kind of an uncomfortable disjunction because she's a romantic. She wants the meaning to come from. She wants everything to end up Great, and the story ends that way, and everything's fine. But at the same time, she also knows that she's like, that love isn't going to define her, that she's at this fancy school, that people have made sacrifices for her to get there, that she has to be a writer, that she's not going to be like limited by her romantic relationship. So, like, maybe those things are already in some kind of attention. Like, is everything going to be fine if I get this guy? But also, I have, you know, these certain responsibilities to a craft and to a job and to people and to the world. And that's something that I've felt in my life. And I felt it from talking to therapists, too, that a lot of the different language that people have for evaluating the success of a life or the success of a narrative is how the love interest works out. Mm. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to detach it from that. And I knew it would be uncomfortable. And I know for some people it's been kind of prohibitively uncomfortable. But sorry for right. them. <laughs> no,
0: no. Yeah, I think that's, I have to say, as characters go, I thought, oh, I wish I could have a daughter, like, oh. so because <laughs> she too. she seemed so... She did seem very self-possessed, and I just loved her interest in the world and that even, you know, she's very philosophical and reflective and maybe not always about what's happening inside of herself, but her, I could imagine having had a very different college experience where I was not a good student, you know, just someone who seemed genuinely so interested in things was so refreshing. So.
2: Oh, that's lovely to hear. Yeah.
0: So you're working on a new novel now. How do you navigate your nonfiction and fiction and it's getting really complicated i'm trying to get started actually
2: on two novels one's going to be a continuation of the idiot and the other one is going to be a book about turkey which is going to have more essayistic components in it and I think that I'm also working on some nonfiction that's about the same stuff that's in the turkey book, which I still want to be a novel. So there's definitely some stuff that I have to work out there. But I'm super excited about it, which is not always the case with one's writing. So I'm just counting my blessings.
0: Oh, okay. good. Yeah. Elif, thank you so much for being here today and talking with us. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much. Elif Batuman recently appeared on the cover of the New York Review of Books, and last month we lost a giant of the American literary scene when its editor, Robert Silvers, died. For the past 54 years, Robert Silver was the editor-in-chief of the New York Review, a position he held since he co-founded the Legendary Journal in 1963. In 2013, he spoke with LARP contributor John Weiner on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the New York Review of Books, In this excerpt, he talks about the founding of the journal. When you started, did you have a time frame in mind? Did you think you could do this for 50 years?
4: (laughs) No, I'll tell you, the essence is that there was a great newspaper strike in New York in the autumn of 1962, and my friend Jason Epstein suddenly had the inspiration, uh, which he imparted to the poet Robert Lowell and his wife Elizabeth Hardwick, that this was the one time in history you could start a book review without a penny since all the publishing houses for months had no place to advertise during that newspaper strike. No New York Times book review. And so Jason, an high editor at Random House, knew that if we started a plausible book review, then all the publishers would simply have to take a page. They had to show their authors, at the very least, that they were publishing books. They could be sold. <laughs> so Jason understood that, and he rang me at Harper's Magazine, where I was an editor, and he said, "Would I leave Harper's and help start a new book review?" And the idea was that more than a publication to fill the hole created by the strike was needed. I had published in nineteen fifty nine, at the end of fifty nine, an article by Elizabeth Hardwick, great writer, and particularly cutting in what she wrote, and she said that at the present time, in book reviewing, in America, there was a vogue for the light little article, but there was a heaviness, a mediocrity, and a lack of passion, character, eccentricity, lack of the literary tone itself. And she made it clear that something else was needed. And, of course, there was no way of doing it. I looked into it because people said, you'll never raise the money. You can't get advertising. Forget it. So when Jason had this idea, we thought not just filling the gap created by the strike, but a new kind of book review. And we asked the writers we admired the most in the world to write book reviews of the books of the year, of the winter, for no money, in three weeks, to show what a new book review could be.
0: Now can I ask you about issue number one? One. Issue number one was dated the February first, nineteen sixty three. It had an amazing lineup Contributors included Norman Mailer, William Styron, Robert Lowell, Robert Penn Warren. I opened my copy just. W. H. Orden. Let's not forget Auden. I opened my copy randomly to pages twenty-two and twenty-three, and on those pages are Susan Sontag, Gore Vidal, and Alfred Kazin. How did you get all these people to
4: do well, this? I'll tell you. A. Most of them had read Lizzie's piece or had sensed the need. B. I knew quite a lot of them from. Editing at Harper's, as Barbara, I had asked Barbara Epstein, Jason's wife, to join me as co-editor, and she knew a good many people. So did Cal and Elizabeth Lowe. I'd known Susan for years. Barbara was a friend of Gore. Alfred Kazin had written for me at Harper's. W.H. Orden was a friend of Jason. And so between the four of us, we knew some marvelous writers. And when we called them up and asked them to review a book, a book of the winter, usually, they sometimes they said, no, I'd like to review another book. But in any case, they did a book in three weeks and no payment. And so between the beginning of January and first of February, we found a printer. Barbara and I went around to the publishing houses selling ads, and Jason was right, they all took a page. And the printer was willing to go ahead because we had these contracts. And out came the issue you just have in your hand. So when we did that, of course, many people said, we put in little notes saying, anyone wants us to go on, please send us a note. And we got over a thousand letters. (laughs) So once we had those thousand letters in hand, it was not terribly difficult to raise money to Mm -hmm. go on. Mm -hmm. Because here we had the evidence that there was a market. Here we had the evidence of an actual paper we'd produced.
0: That was Robert Silvers, the editor-in-chief of the New York Review of Books in dialogue with LARB's John Wiener from 2013. Robert Silvers died on March 20th at the age of 87. We pay our tribute to him. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.